you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you're able, please remain standing as we prepare to read God's Word together. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Remember last week what we looked at in 1 Samuel 15 was how we operate. And what I want us to do this morning as we read 1 Samuel 16 is to contrast that with how God operates. So we'll just read the first 13 verses together. And God's Word says this. The Lord said to Samuel... How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you, and and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? Remember, he just slaughtered a king with a sword. Word travels. Verse 5. And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks in the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, we come this morning and we bow ourselves before you. And Lord, what we want is a, an encounter with your presence. Father, I pray that all of us who are, who are dizzy with worry and with concern over the state of our world and over the state of our lives and over the uncertainty of tomorrow, that today you would bring calm and peace. I pray, Father, for those of us who are too easily impressed and enamored by what's on the outside, that today, Lord, you would give us eyes to see what only you can see, and that is the heart. I pray, Father, that you would convict us of all of the times that we focus on what man can see while we neglect that which is an offering unto you. And Father, I pray, I pray, Lord, that you would look down on us and not see the strong but the weak. Not see the wise, but the foolish. For it is through the strong that you shame the weak, or through the weak that you shame the strong. And it is through the foolish that you shame the wise. And so, Father, may we be as fools unto you as we glory in the cross this morning. We ask these things in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So in 1513... A Spanish conquistador by the name of Ponce de Leon uh, 
came, ac- came a- ashore in Florida. And Ponce de Leon was in search of something that I think we are still in search of today. He was looking for the fountain of youth. That what they believed at that time is they believed that there was a fountain that existed, particularly here in the New World, that existed where you could bathe in it and you could drink from it. And by bathing in it and drinking from it, you could literally begin turning back the clock. That you would be inwardly renewed and you would be outwardly restored. That you would be able to come back to a glorified, idealized version of yourself so that you could be who you knew you once were or you could reach your fullest potential in all that you wanted to do. Now, an idea of the fountain of youth sounds silly to most of us with modern minds today, doesn't it? It sounds foolish to think that there is a a fountain somewhere that we can bathe in and drink from and somehow turn back the Rolodex of time so that we're able to, to be who we once were or who we always wished that we were. But the truth is, is that concept hasn't left us. In the last 18 years, there has been a 273% increase in men who have gotten cosmetic surgery. In that same period of time, that same 18-year period, there has been a 429% increase in the number of women who have gotten cosmetic surgery. And the line of thinking is typically something along along these lines. If I look better, I will feel better. If I will look better, I will feel better. And so what is the attempt here? The attempt is to roll back the time so that you have experience an inward renewal and an outward restoration, right? That is, it is a modern day pursuit of the fountain of youth, of this discovery of finding the idealized version of who you used to be or who you've always wished to be. But you know what I bet most of us have figured out by now? What most of us have figured out by now, and if you haven't figured it out by now, you will figure it out someday, is that we have figured out is that trying to be an ideal person is an impossible task in a less than ideal world. Trying to be an ideal person in a world that is, that is under the, the futility of sin, under the curse of sin, under the brokenness of sin. To, to try to have an ideal body and an ideal face in a body that is deteriorating and decomposing right in front of our very eyes. It is an exhausting task. As a matter of fact, I bet there's some of you. And that's why you're tired this morning. That's why you feel exasperated this morning. As you have tried and tried and tried to put your best foot forward, you have tried and tried and tried to put your best face on, you have tried and tried and tried to become the best version of yourself, but with every passing day, it doesn't feel like you're a step closer, it feels like you're two or three steps further away. And every ideal pursuit you make, there's a, there's a turn that yet shows a new flight of stairs that you have to climb up so that you can be ideal and you are beginning to recognize, I'm just not. I'm just not. And it's an impossible search. You know, what's interesting about that is Saul is presented to us as the ideal king, isn't he? Saul is presented to us as a man who fits every ideal of what you would want a king to have. It says that he is a head taller than all of the other people in all of Israel. It says that he is handsome and strapping. He's presented as a a good military leader. The kind of man that could rah-rah and inspire other people to come and, and get behind him and get on board and join the fight. 
He's presented to us as the kind of man that Israel would be proud to parade before the nations, to show all of the nations that their king is in fact able to deliver them in ways that all the other nations can only dream of. He is presented in every way as the ideal man. And that's how we know that he's referring to how we operate. Because in our minds, the ideal person has very little to do with what's on the inside. If you notice in the description of Saul and all of this picture of who we understand a king to be, none of it has to do with his character. None of it has to do with with the formation of his heart. None of it has to do with his devotion to the Lord. All of it has to do with an outward appearance. This idealism that humanity has been pursuing from the beginning. And I wonder, I wonder if you are deceiving yourself and exhausting yourself and wearing yourself threadbare, trying to conform the outside to the ideal image that America has portrayed that you are to live up to all the while killing, crushing, and destroying the person on the inside because of neglect. Because our country has convinced us if we can have everything together on the outside, somehow, surely the inside's just going to follow suit. But brothers and sisters, what I want you to see is that that is man's thinking, not the Lord's. That is the way that we operate, not the way that the Lord operates. And so I want us to see this contrast with how God operates. And by seeing how God operates, my prayer is is that many of you will be brought rest today. That many of you can stop having to run after this impossible pursuit of idealism and instead be able to live a life that is characterized by grace, mercy, and freedom. All right, so that's where I want to land today. The first thing I want us to see about how God operates this morning is that God doesn't worry about the future. God doesn't worry about the future. If you look at verse 1, you'll notice that there is an immediate contrast between Samuel and God, the way man operates, Samuel, and the way that God operates. It says in verse 1, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Okay, so this idea of grief is being carried forward from chapter 15. Chapter 15 ends and Saul is there, or Samuel is there, and it says that he is distraught over the condition of Saul. When he realizes that God has rejected Saul as king, he is distraught because why? Saul was the one that he had anointed himself. God had sent Samuel to anoint Saul, and Saul seemed to represent to Samuel something that was very good. It represented security to Samuel. It represented happiness to Samuel. It represented peace to Samuel. Because you had this mighty king who was going to make sure that the promises of God and the provisions of God and the protection of God were applied among the people of God. That Saul very truly was a living incarnation or was intended to be a living incarnation of the greatness of God and of the promises of God to his people. And so in Saul, Samuel saw represented his idealized version of what he wanted and expected Israel to become. And so now suddenly, suddenly, and see if this sounds familiar, suddenly when, their, when his political leader doesn't live up to the hype, suddenly when his political leader doesn't deliver on all the promises, suddenly when his political leader can't actually deliver all of the things that he has assured him that he can deliver, it's not just that he's lost his king, he's lost his dream. He's coping with the death of what he expected the future to look like. That's always the hardest part of disappointment, isn't it? 
It's not always the, the, the struggle in the moment. It's what the struggle in the moment represents. It's the death, not just of what you're experiencing today, but what you expected tomorrow to look like and 10 years from now to look like. It's the, it's the death of what you expect your family to look like. That's what, that's what Samuel's wrestling with here, with the deposing of, of Saul. He's, his whole concept of the experience that he's going to have as God's people in God's promised land, experiencing and living under God's protection, has all just been thrown into upheaval. So Samuel is panicked. But God is not panicked. But God is not panicked. That's the difference in, in our way and God's way. We are unraveled. We are thrown into upheaval. God is not panicked at all. Look at what he says. It says that since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to, the, to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Do you see this? This is how God operates. God is not panicked. God provides. God is not panicked. He provides. He he is essentially looking back at Samuel and he's saying, do you think my plan was contingent upon Saul? Do you think my goodness was contingent upon the goodness of Saul? Do you think my strength and my promises are are contingent upon one who is as flaky and insecure and shallow and superficial as Saul is? No, 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 no. There's a theme that actually goes throughout all of the Bible. What you see is the man of God comes, he leads, he fails, he dies. The people of God panic. They freak. They don't know what to think. They don't know where they're going to go. Moses is gone. Then Joshua is gone. Then Caleb. They they don't know what's going to happen next. But what does God always do? He does what he's doing right here. He always just raises up another one. Because it's not about Moses. And it's not about Joshua. And it's not about Saul. And it's not about David. He says, get the anointing horn. Let's go. I'm going to anoint another one. I'm raising someone else up. Because my plan is not contingent upon your performance. My plan is not dependent upon Saul's goodness or Saul's strength. My plan is dependent upon my goodness and my strength. See, Saul's failure was not news to God. And I want to take that a step further, and I want, I, I want it to bring comfort to you. That not only was Saul's failure not news to God, no news is news to God. Do you realize that? No news is news to God. That Saul, God is not up in heaven rubbing his forehead and wringing his hands and pacing the floor. The Lord is seated upon a throne, high and lifted up. He is unworried and unfazed by what happens here. It makes me think about my brothers, people that I'm close to. I, I, they announced recently that many of the employees at the at the contract employees at the depot, their contracts will not be renewed as they as they come up. And, I, and I, my heart was immediately broken by so many. And it's so hard to not allow that to to cause you to go into total upheaval in your life if you're affected by that. And it's it's hard if it's in your family. It's hard if it's your friend. But you know, I have comfort because none of that was news to God. None of that was news to God. I think about all of the vaccine mandates and, and all of the craziness that's going on with the vaccine mandates where you can lose your job and the inability to provide for your family if you are unwilling to take the word of the government. And y'all, it, it's, it's, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. 
And you know I'm not anti-vaccine. You know I, I personally have been vaccinated, but but I'm I'm anti-mandate. I'm anti somebody holding a gun to my head and tell me I have to do it, right? And that feels unsettling to us. That feels terrifying to us. It feels sudden to us. But can I tell you something? It's not news to the Lord. It's not news to the Lord. It didn't catch him by surprise. He is not unsure about what's going to happen next. He's not uncertain about how he's going to allow his people to enjoy his promises. He's not unsure about how he's going to provide for you. He's not unsure how he's going to protect you. The Lord is not uncertain. The Lord is not rubbing his forehead. The Lord is not wringing his hands. The Lord is not pacing the floor of heaven. He is seated upon the throne, high and lifted up. High and lifted up. So, of course, you know how Samuel reacted. The Lord is coming here, and he's given this gentle confrontation to Samuel. And he's doing it really to comfort him. He's confronting. Think, think about this, because we don't think of confrontation in this context. And I think this is actually how confrontation should be performed in the local church and among believers. But he's confronting here for the purpose of comforting him, of, of bringing, of bringing uh, some, some ease to his suffering, some ease to his, his panicked, freaked-out mind. But look at verse 2 and the very next thing that Samuel does. Because, y'all, if this is not us, we are not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't even talk about us, okay? Verse 2, and Samuel said, well, how can I go? If God hear, if Saul hears it, he will kill me. This is what Samuel does. The Lord comes in and he calms him about what he's scared about, right? He comes in and he said, look, I, I'm, this isn't news to me. I'm going to go. I'm going to annoy another man. And you know what Samuel's immediate reaction is? To go and worry about the very next thing he can find to worry about. Does that sound like you? That sounds like me. I, th- that's me. The Lord will come in and I will have seen him do something that only God can do. You've had experiences like this. Like God comes in and he does a work that is so supernatural and so powerful. I know, I know without a shadow of a doubt, it's God. And the very next thing I do is, oh Lord, what's, what's going to happen here? How's this going to work out? I mean, it could be in the same 30-minute time period. One minute I'm celebrating the providence of God and the faithfulness of God and the sovereignty of God. And five minutes later, I'm panicked like, God, you've forsaken me. It's obvious. It's obviously you're not going to deliver me here. Right? So, so what's he worried about? So what he's worried about here is that um, uh, what he's doing to go and anoint another king amounts to treason in the eyes of Saul. And he knows this, right? Like, God's sending him to go and raise up a new king. Well, that means that the old king is going to go away. The old king is, is not going to fare so well in all of this. And guess what? Saul's not going to be pumped to hear this news. And so Samuel's like, well, well now he's going to come and he's surely he's going to, you know, off with my head kind of whole thing. And, and I don't know what you want me to do. And, and I'm, you can hear his words beginning to outrun his mind, can't you? Listen to what God says, because this is what God says to us as we move from, from panic to panic, as we move from worry to worry. Verse 3, we'll invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint him for me, for whom I, I'm sorry about that, for whom I declare to you. Is, do you hear what he's saying? This is what he's saying. Don't look at all of that. Don't you worry one second about Saul. Don't look to Saul. Don't look to your worries. Don't look to what you're panicked about. Don't look to all of the news around you. Look at me. Look at me. I'm going to do this work. I'm, I'm going to send you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to anoint the king. You don't look at everything else. Look at me. Look at me. 
It made me think about when, uh, in a couple of weeks, Megan and I are going to be going on a trip to Tampa to see some family. And that means that I get to tow a 36-foot fifth wheel through downtown Atlanta. All right? Now, that, that, that will increase your faith in the Lord right there. Okay, and I don't know if any of you have ever towed a long towable through Atlanta, but it is an extreme experience, okay, because, you know, at times you'll be five or six lanes wide, and of course their exits aren't all on the right. They have exits on the left-hand side, like who does that, right? And so you got to like get in and shoot across traffic and exit on the other side to be able to get where you're going. And I remember the first time that I did it, like I'm looking and you got these big tow mirrors that are sticking out, and it feels like you're literally with an inch of death at any given time, right? Like you're looking and you're looking in your mirrors and it's like you can see the trailer, it feels like it's going to rub tires with the trailer that's behind it and people are, are flying in front of you and you're, you're trying to do the defensive driving thing and, you're, and the whole time I'm watching the trailer and it feels like every time the trailer budges an inch, like it's certain death in my mind, right? Until I learned a trick. Now look, y'all, y'all sort of this away. I'm not saying it makes it easy. I'm not saying it does away with all the stress. I'm saying it makes it better. It's, it's a trick, okay? That if you will just look straight ahead and you will only concern yourself with where your truck is going, the trailer goes wherever the truck goes. That if I sit and I look through the mirrors the whole time I drive through Atlanta, I have to stop on the side of the interstate for counseling, okay? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like I have to go get like a defibrillator or something and like... But if I only concern myself with looking forward, with looking out the windshield and keeping the truck between the lines. If I keep the truck straight and I keep the truck between the lines, the trailer, the trailer is going where the truck goes. The trailer is going to stay between the lines and the trailer is going to stay exactly where it's supposed to be. And somehow, some way, I end up where I'm supposed to be. That's a picture. That's a picture of how we're supposed to live our lives, brothers and sisters. If you look in the rearview mirrors of your life and you pay attention to all the news and all the notifications that are blowing up, I mean, how many bad news notifications do you get on a daily basis on your phone? It's an ungoshly amount, isn't it? It's an overwhelming amount. And there is study after study after study that has come and reaffirmed that there is a human capacity limit on the amount of bad news that we're able to handle. Is there any reason, is there any wonder why uh, anxiety and depression are at all-time highs among the people today? It's because we are inundated with bad news. And I'm telling you if, you, if you pay attention to every bad news notification that you get and your, your TV never turns off Fox News or CNN or whatever it is that you like to watch and you're constantly feeding off bad news and if you're coming and you're surrounded by bad news people all the time, let me just promise you, your life is going to be miserable. You're going to live from panic to panic and worry to worry. But the Lord says, don't look at all of that. Look at me. Look at me. Keep your eyes forward on me. Go where I'm telling you to go. I know what that said about the depot. I know what they're saying about your assembly line. I know what they're saying about your job. I know what they're saying about your family. I know what they're saying about raising your kids in this generation. I know what they're saying about all of these things. But you keep your eyes on me. Keep forward. Keep pressing on. And I promise you that if you will follow after me, some way, somehow, your life will end up where it's supposed to end up in the end. That if you will follow after the Lord, the Lord will not let you down. Because you don't have the capacity to follow after Him and remedy all of this stuff at the same time, brothers and sisters. The first thing I wanted you to see is that God doesn't worry about the future. The second thing I want you to see is that God isn't interested by charisma. 
impressed by charisma. God isn't impressed by charisma. Look at what it says there in verse 6. So it says, so let me set it up in just a second. So essentially what God does is he sends Samuel to Jesse's house and he's sending him to Jesse's house because he says that one of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king. This is the one that he's going to anoint. Verse 6 is the first uh, communication that we have about that. It says, when they came, he looked upon Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. All right, so, so Samuel goes and he sees the first, the oldest, the eldest of, of Jesse's sons. And it would have made all the sense in the world. If you're going to anoint one of Jesse's sons, you're going to anoint the one with the birthright. You're going to anoint the one that, that carried forward the, banter for, the banner for his, his family name. You're going to carry forward the one who would have received the majority of the inheritance. You're going to carry forward the, the eldest. He's going to be your king. And and Samuel goes in, and Samuel is impressed. He is blown away. And this is, you can just hear him saying it. I didn't know there were one of these people in the world. And there's two right here in Israel. So the, the, the picture that we get of Eliab is really that he's like Saul 2.0, right? Like, like he's the improved version of Saul. Look at, I put uh, 1 Samuel 9.2 there at the bottom of your screen. This is a description of Saul. Listen to what it says. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people who was more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. All right? Now listen to the, to the description of Eliab, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on his height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Do you see what he's doing? He's, he said, in Samuel's mind, everything is finally back on the table when he meets Eliab. Finally, I thought the promises were dead, but you're right, God, you really are good. You provided one just as tall as Saul. I'm panicked. We're going to lose everything. Ideal Israel out the window. Wait, there's another handsome guy that you've created. You are able to make as many of these little puppets in the closet that you want to make, Lord. You are really great. And the Lord says, but I've rejected him. I've rejected him. In other words, you, you can imagine here that what you're getting is, is there's almost like God is rolling his eyes at Samuel, isn't he? S Samuel, did you not see how it went the first time? You, you were impressed by how tall Saul was. You were impressed by how handsome Saul was. You were impressed by the charisma that Saul had. You were impressed by the whole package that was Saul. But how did that leave you, Samuel? Did that not leave you in tears? Did that not leave you feeling utterly betrayed and abandoned? Did that not leave you feeling as though you had been totally forsaken by me? Then why would you do it again, Samuel? Why would you do it again? You see, it is the way of man to prioritize charisma over character. It is the way of man to look on the outside and to be outwardly impressed without giving the first thought to the heartbeat that's on the inside. It is the way of man to be impressed by resumes and by, by, by smiles and by Facebook appearances. That is, it is the way of man to set yourself up for a damning failure. It is the way of man to prop yourself up in such a way that the whole house of cards comes crumbling down. Many of you have 
mentioned to me that you've listened to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. And, and if you haven't, that's okay. It, it's a podcast about a church that was in Seattle, Washington, Mars Hill, uh, Mars Hill Church. And it was pastored by a man by the name of Mark Driscoll. And it, it grew to about 15,000 people and was one of the most influential churches in all of North America. In fact, early in my Christian walk, early in my ministry, I really began to listen to Driscoll preach every single week, and it had an effect on me, and it, was, it, was, it came to me at an important time. And he was a masterful and brilliant communicator on, on so many different levels. But, but many people began to pick up on some things that I began to pick up as I listened, and that was that over time he became more of a, a shock jock, and he became more outrageous in the things that he said. And, and then there became began to be reports behind the scenes that he would do things like he would he would create a pseudonym and go on ch- on on uh, in chat rooms and he would say things that were completely ungodly for someone to say or he would write a book and then he would hire a promotion company to come up and buy a whole bunch of copies of that book so that it would look like a bestseller a New York Times bestseller even when it wasn't a New York Times bestseller very deceptive or behind the scenes he would often say something like, there's a lot of bodies that are piled up behind the Mars Hill bus that the bus has just ran over. And behind the scenes, he was increasingly known as a totalitarian and authoritarian ruler in the church and a man that was, was above all accountability. Well, what makes this story so remarkable is this church had campuses that were all over the greater Seattle area, including all the way down into New Mexico. They had campuses that were, that were just everywhere, right? And one day he comes in and, the, and he says, I'm out. And the whole tower comes crashing down. And today, there is not a Marshall church. The church does not even exist. Because it fell on the hills of one leader. And so this podcast, and, and you know, there are things I like about it, and there are things that I don't like about it, but this podcast is really telling the story of how a church could be built like that and how it could be so prominent, and how you could have a, a pastor who was, who was so, so charismatic and so seemingly effective, and all of the whole house of cards come crashing down in a single day. And Barry Cosper, who is the producer of the podcast and who served on staff at Mars Hill Church, he says this, he says, Perhaps the fall of Mars Hill isn't just about Mark Driscoll's failures. Perhaps it's the failure of all of us. Perhaps it's the culture that all of us have created in which Christians are elevated to celebrity status. Where we go and we look for a pastor who is polished and pristine, who is charismatic, but is far enough away from us that we never know him and he never knows us and we're not able to hold him accountable and he's not willing to hold us accountable. A pastor who has the perfect shiny white smile and all the slickest jokes, but who ultimately and inwardly is rotting out before the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if that's true. Because as many of us might go and we pile on Mark Driscoll, and I think many of the things that he did were abhorrent. I think they were abhorrent. I think they were, I think they were wicked. But I think it is just as wicked for the people of God to surround him and heap on him scorn and heap on him anger and heap on him vitriol. Meanwhile, we go and find ourselves another celebrity with another white smile at a distance who we can listen to their polished presentation and their smooth jokes, even if they are godly men who are unable to hold us accountable in our lives. Why? Because we are impressed by charisma and we are uncaring about character. Think about how we do pastor searches now. 
Think about how we do pastor searches. Most churches, when they do a pastor search now, you know the process is? They do a survey of the congregation. They say, who do you want to be your pastor? Never mind, there's a warning There's a warning given by Paul to Timothy about gathering for ourselves preachers that we want to hear that for our itching ears, right? But who do you want to hear? And they come up with a profile, and you'll have a profile, and he'll be, you know, 42 and a half years old with three kids that all are stair-stepped in walk in the image of Jesus and a wife who, who plays the piano and, and serves with a smile on her face and you know he'll have a doctorate but, and he'll be a dynamic preacher but he'll be a gentle spirit you know like have all this kind of stuff and then they set out to find this robot like he exists right why because we're, we want the exterior we want the trappings We want a resume that impresses us. We want people that impress us. We want pastors that impress us. Think about how we go about searching for our churches. We make out a list. We'll we'll gather the family around sometimes. Like if we're a particularly spiritual family, we'll gather around the, all right, we're changing church. We're going to go to a new church. What kind of church do you want? I want this and this and this. And we make a list of all the religious products that we want to be able to consume and all all of the religious programming that's important for our particular place in life. And we set out to find this idealistic church that has all the programmings and none of the problems and all of the, all of the products and, and no, none of the irritations. And we go and we set out and we think we found it and that doesn't work. And we think we found it and that doesn't work. And we think we found it and that doesn't work. But brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, it's because none of this is real. None of this. That God isn't concerned. God isn't concerned with what's on the outside. He isn't concerned with programming and he isn't concerned with a polished preacher and he isn't concerned with with the ideal church. What God is looking for is a place in which his presence can dwell among his people, a place in which the scriptures are held up high, a place in which character is prioritized over charisma, a place in which says, God, I will follow you backwards off the edge of the cliff if that's where you want me to go. We will fire in the path pastor that makes no sense we will go and we will preach the gospel when it's in season and when it's out of season we will say the fullness of who God is because God what we want what we love what we long for is to come after you to come after you you see this is what he's teaching Samuel God is not impressed by anything that we do listen to what he says The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is unconcerned with all that we've done. God is unimpressed by the resume that we present to him. What God is looking for is a heart that loves him. What God is looking for is a heart that wants him. We are so easily impressed We are so easily impressed by how smooth preachers are and how funny preachers are. We are so easily impressed by how good someone looks on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat. We are so easily impressed by all the books that we've read and all the blogs that are floating and all the hot takes that are out there. But God is unmoved by a single one of them. God says, don't give me all of that. Don't give me all the trappings. Don't give me all of the makeup and smiles. Give me your heart. Give me your heart. So I want to ask you this morning, how much time are you spending on the part of you that only God sees? 
How much of your time and how much of your energy and how much of your effort and how much of your resources is invested in the part of you that only God knows? Or is all of it being invested in the outward resume and the outward appearance? Because I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, God isn't impressed by you and God isn't impressed by your charisma and God isn't impressed by your resume. God wants your heart. He wants your heart. And that brings me to my final point this morning, and that is God doesn't need a prodigy. God doesn't need a prodigy. See, here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that you've heard everything that I've just said, and it hasn't brought relief. It's actually brought greater burden. That you can hear what I'm saying, and there's a way that you can process it that says, wow, now I don't just have to be impressive on the outside. Now I have to be impressive on the inside. Wow, now I don't just have to be ideal on the outside, now I also have to be ideal on the inside. And you all already know that there is a capacity limit that you have. And some of you in this pursuit of being ideal can go farther than others. But no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter how handsome you are, how young you are, how old you are, how educated you are, no matter how high your IQ is, there is a limit and for every single sinner. The pursuit of idealism is a death march. It's a death march. That you get to a place where you say, I just can't take another step. I can't be perfect another day. And if you hear what I'm saying, is saying that you have to be perfect on the inside and perfect on the outside. I have good news for you. I have good news for you. That's where David enters the story. That's where David enters the story. And what David is meant to show us in 1 Samuel chapter 16 is that God isn't looking for the ideal person. That God isn't looking for an inwardly strong person either. God isn't looking for an inwardly able person either. He's looking for a weak person. He's looking for a disabled person. Let's look at what he says. Verse 11. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? I want you to hold that in your mind. And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. So so this is the picture. This is how we're introduced to David. We're introduced to David as David literally being the weakest candidate to be the, to be the king. Okay? So, so he goes and he asks, he asks uh, Jesse, he says, God has rejected all seven of these boys. Do you not have one that God wants? God sent me here. You said this, this looks like a full house to me. Like, but God says no to everyone. Is there someone that we're missing? <laughs> and Jesse's like, well, there's the one that I know is not going to qualify. There's the one that I know is, is, is not going to make the mark. There's the one that, that is so far outside of what you're looking for. I didn't want to waste your time, Samuel. In other words, the picture that we have of David is that he's already marginalized by his own family. He's already marginalized by his own family. His own family doesn't believe that he qualifies. His own family doesn't believe that he amounts to anything that God could use. So he comes and he brings him. He's the youngest. The word youngest, it can be translated as tiniest. That the idea that we're getting is David's the runt of the litter. He's the one that's been marginalized. Not only that, you have Saul, who's a head taller than everyone else. You have Eliab, he's a head taller than everyone else. He's these strapping warrior men who are going to represent on the battlefield like gladiator. And then you have little David that kind of comes in like this. It's ugly duckling right? He's like, can you imagine 
Samuel's expecting this, this guy that's a head taller and is strong and strapping and tough, and you have this little runt come walking right in. Keeping the sheep. This is the smelliest, lowest job that a person can have. This is servant's work. This is what the servants did. This is not what the sons of the elite did. This is not what a king would do. The shepherds, they didn't even have a good reputation. They were known as being a salty bunch, kind of like the way we might think of, of sailors, right? Like they were known as being a salty bunch that, that worked with their hands and smelled like sheep. Not the kind of people that you invited to a dinner party. And here's this tiny little David smelling like sheep, marginalized by his family. Do you get the picture? Do you get the picture? He doesn't catch Samuel's eye. He doesn't get the recommendation of his father. He doesn't have the respect of his family, and he is chosen by God. Do you see this? That Saul is rejected, though Saul is outwardly impressive. Eliab is, imp- is outwardly impressive, yet he is rejected by God. But here is, here, is, here is David, and David brings no qualifications. David is the worst qualified of them all. And God says, I choose you. Not because you're good, not because you're strong, not because you're wise, but because I am good and I do my greatest work through my weakest servants. You see, brothers and sisters, we spend all of our time trying to be like Saul. We spend all of our energy trying to be like Saul. We spend all of our work trying to make our kids look like Saul and help them present their best foot forward and give them every opportunity in this earth. And yet it is Saul that God rejects. Jesus said, he said, many are going to come and with their outward religion, they're going to look very impressive and they're going to say to me, Lord, Lord, they're going to know the right answers to the right questions and outwardly they're going to look as though they are one of my people because they're going to know everything that they're supposed to know. But the truth is their hearts are far from me and I will say, depart from me for I never knew you. That what the Lord is looking for is one who will take all of their heart, all of their life and say, Jesus, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know why you want me. I don't know why you would love me but here here is my heart here is my life here is everything that I am is that you honestly before God the one who sees your heart and judges it is that you and if that's you if that's you is that what you're training your children to to do is that who you're training your children to be because you can't be like David by pursuing the paths of Saul See what God does. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29, he says, but God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of of the Lord. Let me tell you something that is an insight that is nothing more important than I can tell you than this. And that is this fact that you, you can't be too weak for God. None of you can be. There is no amount of weakness that you can bring to the table that God says you are unusable in my kingdom. In fact, in fact, the greatest, greater amount of weakness that you bring to the table, the greater amount of grace and glory he brings to the table so that he says, I might do my work through you. You can't be too weak for the kingdom, but you can be too strong. You can be too strong. 
You can be too strong to humble yourself before the Lord. You can be too strong to acknowledge how badly you need His grace. You can be too strong to believe that you are able to right the wrongs and to fix your life and to present your idealized self. You can be too strong so that ultimately the Lord rejects you. What I hope you see is that it's good news. It's good news. You can stop pretending this morning. That what David teaches us is that God isn't looking for the ideal person. God is looking for a real person. A real person. A person like you. A person with sin and shame and guilt in your life. A person who hasn't measured up. A person who's often fallen flat. That if you will just find yourself exactly where you are and turn and place your whole hope and heart and love and passion in the hands of the risen Christ. It is through you that your weakness will be made strong. That God will use you in your foolishness to shame the wise. That God will use you in your weakness to shame the strong. You're less than ideal. But God isn't looking for ideal. God's looking for real. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.